This episode of 64, a chess podcast, is sponsored by Aim Chess. Use code DAVID30 to get 30% off your first month with Aim Chess and start improving your chess today. Jeremy Kane. Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I'm David. I'm joined today by National Master Jeremy Kane. Uh, before I begin, I just want to once again thank Aim Chess for sponsoring this podcast. Once again, you can use code David30 to get 30% off your first month of your subscription. Um, I also will, will like to let you know that uh, we do have a Patreon. Uh, it's up and running. Uh, it's patreon.com slash 64 podcast, I believe. Uh, and it's uh, lowest tier is $1. If you just like what you hear, you want to support in any way, a dollar a month. And uh, I mean, that's no longer enough to buy a pizza or a coffee in New York. Maybe, you know, a couple of years ago it was, but uh, anything would be appreciated. I put a lot of work in this podcast and uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the episode and I'm really excited to have you on Jeremy. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. And, you know, we have a fledgling little podcast and, uh, you know, we're growing the family, more and more people coming on. And so it's, uh, it's always nice to have uh, people on the show. Uh, Jeremy, uh, why don't you just uh, tell our, uh, why don't you just tell our listeners uh, some of the, your career highlights in chess? We'll just get started that way. Sure. So I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and I uh, found the coach of the local high school team, Alex Bedinelli, who's an FM who used to live there, now lives in Milwaukee. And I had an older brother who was on that, the high school team that Alex coached. And so I started working with him when I was even a little younger and made a lot of progress. Eventually, I got kind of lucky in a tournament and won the Wisconsin State Championship when I was like 15, um, which was sort of <laughs> inspirational for me. And took a little break playing just a bit when I was in college. And then after college, I got a job at Silver Knights Chess, which is a DC area after school program. And I taught a bunch there, helped expand the program. And a couple of years ago, I switched over to uh, the, be the curriculum director at the website chess.com, which is the number one chess website in the world. And that's been fantastic, just designing uh, video courses and challenges. Um, for the last couple of years. Yeah. And uh, so I always felt like your voice sounds familiar. And I have to ask some of these earlier episodes, these earlier videos, is that you talking like teaching? No. So I've only done something like four videos uh, for the website. Um, the big secret is the voice of coach at chess.com is Dane Matson, national master. Um, used to be from Wisconsin too. Actually, I think he's in Missouri now. And he has that soothing voice of a lot of our more beginner videos. You're very soothing. Yeah. All the, I remember those beginner videos so well, because before I got a coach, I remember, you know, dabbling with some of them and you know, they're, they're great. Obviously you can learn a lot. Uh, I always try to recommend them to, to people uh, who maybe have a chess.com membership and uh, want to learn without maybe wanting to put time into buying a coach. So yeah, that's Dane. He's fantastic. Um, 
And he designed a lot of our beginner stuff even before I got there. So you are the curriculum director for chess.com. What does that mean? How do you exactly plan a curriculum for such a large website? Sure. So we kind of split our lessons into two sections. There is a course outline for beginners, you know, taking you all the way from this is how the pieces move up through um, sort of intermediate advanced level. And then what I've primarily been working on is what we call mastery courses, which is everything kind of for the more tournament level player up through, you know, some sometimes grandmasters enjoy the courses as well. Um, and so we'll bring on strong players. We'll get them to record on what we think is some educational topic we haven't covered much yet. And we'll design challenge puzzles to make it a bit of a more active process than just sitting there and watching videos for hours. And uh, so, so I also noticed recently in the last year or so that there's been a total overhaul on how the lessons work. Because when I remember when I started going on chess.com, um, a lot of there was not that many, like, or I guess not as much video lessons. But now it feels like when I'm on the lessons tab, that many of the lessons that they have that are prime for you to look at have like a 20 minute video to watch before you have like five or six like problems to work on afterwards from the video. Yeah. So at this point, we just have tons of lessons and we come out with a new course each week and we cover as many chess topics as we can. Um, and sort of aim it at also, again, as many levels as we can. We've got stuff for beginners, stuff for improving active tournament players, um, and even some that are probably designed mostly for masters and, you know, really just any player can enjoy it. Now, do you have any, any courses that you uh, are particularly fond of or that you recommend for anybody? Yeah. So, well, personally, I enjoy the one that I make just because it was fun, um, which was uh, about defending in chess. Um, one of our ongoing courses, so it's a long one that we keep adding to is, uh, Grandmaster Eugene Perlstein, who I think has been on your podcast, yes, he has. has one called every gambit refuted, where he looks at all these gambits, all these crazy sacrifices that are often popular in online games and fast time controls. And he gives you a defensive setup to fight for the initiative and just not be afraid of the Stafford gambit or other kind of tricky things you might run into. Yeah, that's a great course. And, and shout out uh, GM Eugene Perlstein uh, for making a great course. I actually, I've checked out a couple of the episodes. It's really good. And um, yeah, also, so it says in your in your Twitter bio, um, by the way, I should plug uh, your Twitter, of course. It's at Chess Mensch, uh, M-E-N-S-C-H, Mensch. It's uh, Yiddish. Uh, you know, I live, I live in a religious neighborhood in Brooklyn, so I'm very familiar with the terminology. Um, <laughs> But uh, you can follow Jeremy on Twitter. Uh, it also says you're a chess coach. I'm wondering, first of all, um, are you still an active coach? But also with your experience as a chess coach, how has that informed your job as like a curriculum director for such a large website where you're not really interacting with people in the same way? Yeah, so I have a long history, you know, well over a decade of coaching both classes, like so scholastic classes with, you know, 20 kids and also one-on-one with, beginners through, you know, very serious tournament players. I'm a national master. So probably if a student gets to like 2000 plus, maybe I should hand them off to a grandmaster, but I've helped numerous students who are now masters get to where they are. Um, And I think the way that that helps with the curriculum design is I can often figure out what questions people might have. So I can figure out what questions the users might have 
which is wonderful because we've had courses with even, you know, super grandmasters rated well over 2,700. And they might need someone with some more coaching experience to let them know, like, hey, can you explain this a little bit more? Because um, the thing about these brilliant grandmasters is it often comes easy to them and they might not be able to understand what the you know club player needs a little bit more worked out for them. Now, I also, I saw recently Shakir Marmadiarov has been doing courses recently. I mean, how do you, how do you actually reach out to, to players like who are that strong uh, to, to come and do coaches and, and how do you select them really? Do you just really ask anybody who's like top, top hundred, like, Hey, would you like to do a course for us? Or is there like, what's kind of the process behind that? So that's sort of a group effort. Sometimes I'll see a great player and wonder if we can get him and if we have any relationship with him and try to reach out. Often some of our uh, more experienced team members, uh, Danny Wrench or National Master Sam Copeland have some past work experience with these people. And so we'll get in touch. And yeah, Shock is wonderful. We've got two courses from him so far and probably more coming up. And I think we're going to also have some more very top players coming on for courses pretty soon. That's awesome. That's great. Um, now, question about chess.com. How long have you been working with them for? About two and a half years now. So, of course, obviously, and I've talked about this a lot of my podcasts, um, this, this chess boom that occurred like over the last year or so. Um, but you've basically been around then since probably late 2018, something like that, or early 2019? Yeah, early 2019. So right after the, the world championship, uh, now what was this, uh, this like chess surge, like from somebody who worked at chess.com, like, was there suddenly like all this extra stuff that you had to do in terms of server side things? I don't know if you're aware of that kind of, that kind of stuff, but, um, like the player base exploded on, on all the chess websites. Yeah, that is definitely true. And I'm not quite the person on chess.com to ask about that just because, I have a wonderfully sort of consistent job where I design the lessons and I get something coming out each week. And I'm, if there's a big event or something, I might do some work to help cover that. But mostly my stuff is just there for everyone. I know that though the coders, for instance, the people who, who write the website and kind of the backbone of the team, those people had a lot of extra work to suddenly make sure that, you know, when the, when the player base doubled or whatever it is, they were ready for it. And they've, they've been amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, as my listeners though, I play on chess.com. I'm a big fan. Uh, I think that, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, for me, it feels smoother. Uh, no disrespect to Lee chess. I know you work for chess.com. I love both, <laughs> but, uh, I just, I play on Lee chess. And and chess.com, if you want to challenge me on any of them, by the way, my username is at son of nothing. Um, I have actually never mentioned that on the podcast before, but I thought I should mention it. Oh, you're going to get uh, a bunch of challenges now. Yeah, a bunch of daily challenges now from the from the listeners. Hey, I welcome any challenge. If you think you can beat my Karakon, let's see it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Chicago Blaze because a couple of episodes ago, back when I was in college, uh, I had National Master Gopal Menon on the show. And he mentioned uh, the Chicago blaze team, uh, which played for uh, the U S chess league, which is the precursor to the pro chess league that many of us are aware of. Um, and you, as you told me before, as we were preparing for the episode, uh, you wrote a book on that. So um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about like this uh, precursor to the pro chess league and uh, what was kind of your connection to that team. I'll start with that. 
Yeah, so I uh, went to college at University of Chicago, and so I was in sort of the chess scene there. And the U.S. Chess League, yeah, it's the precursor to the Pro Chess League. So it was the earlier brainchild of uh, I am Greg Shahadi. And Chicago had a team, and the owner was uh, Savan Meridian, a local a local player and organizer there. And he brought me in one year as an alternate on the team, and I played one game. And I helped out with just like the team blog and, and coverage stuff. And that season, and I think also the next season, I did a uh, game of the week analysis. And unfortunately, uh, a little while after I left the area, Savan passed away unexpectedly. And um, my friend Daniel Parmet, who was the team manager, another Chicago area player, uh, contacted me and asked if we wanted to write something about the history of the team. And so Daniel gave the manager's perspective. I contributed a lot of game analysis and actually many of the players, many of whom are also stronger than me, uh, Eric Rosen, Grandmaster Dmitry Gurevich, uh, Grandmaster Josh Fidel, many strong players contributed some analysis of their own. And so we put together a book, just a history of the Chicago Blaze. Um, and all proceeds from that uh, benefit the family of Savan Meridian. And it's available on Amazon and possibly some other places. Oh, that's good. That's awesome. Now, um, so you did play one game, but you were also, you were just affiliated with the team. I guess it's fair to say that the competitive scene, this must've been like something like 10 years ago. Uh, was it quite the same as, uh, as the pro chess league now, where you have, you know, the Toronto chess bras or whatever they are. And, uh, so the U S chess league was a little bit more similar to say the uh, amateur team competitions in the U S where they have an average rating mm -hmm. um, and try to make it a little more balanced. So if you have, you know, just a ton of top players in one area, that's an advantage, but it doesn't mean you're going to win every single match. And this one I think was something like average rating had to be below 2,400, but they also wanted to attract top players like the Hikaru Nakamura's of the world. So I, I don't remember the exact rule, but it was something like anyone above 2,600 just counted as 2,600. Um, and that way you don't have to balance out Hikaru Nakamura with some total amateur on the bottom board. <laughs> well, that's, uh, did Hikaru play in the US chess? He did. He was uh, on the St. Louis team. And I think they were a pretty serious rival with uh, Chicago for a little while. Now, do you remember who you played against in you when you were like, coming in so yeah i was expecting to play a master or something and then it was just something weird i think a player got sick at the last moment and i played an alternate i think his name was gerald roberts who was like a manager of the dallas team but he was a little lower rated and so i was able to win pretty smoothly and then since i was just an alternate i ended up not playing again that season oh yeah well uh and you also you said eric rosen played on that team too yeah, Eric Rosen was one of the main players, and he was pretty young. So he was young and upcoming, improving player, which made him really valuable. Because anything that has a rating cap, you always want to have your bottom board be some young, improving player um, who's probably, you know, 200 points stronger than his rating at the time. It's also interesting. Well, you so you said you went to University of Chicago. If I remember correctly, I remember reading that Eric Rosen went to the University of Illinois, Romana Champaign. At least for that three sounds years. right to me for at least part of his time. I'm, um, I knew him a little bit. We played one tournament game in Chicago, um, but I didn't see him too often. 
Uh, and you know, I actually, um, I'm going to Denmark, uh, for 10 months, but when I come back, I'm going to be starting a PhD at uh, university of Illinois. So do you have any recommendations maybe for the Chicago chess scene? Um, it's a good area. They've got obviously the Chicago open each year. They have uh, amateur team North, I think is what it's called now. Um, and there are a couple parks to play by the waterfront. If the weather's nice, that are always enjoyable. One thing I always liked at university of Chicago was there were always some people just not even affiliated with the university, just always like playing blitz either on campus or at the park nearby or the local McDonald's. And so if I ever needed a study break, I could always just go there and play some casual games. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so moving on, um, chess.com is also covering the, the world cup. And uh, we talked a little bit. Have you been, you, you told me that you've been following a little bit, right? Using the Naradisky Topalov commentary. Yeah, they're wonderful. Um, I hadn't heard, seen Topalov do commentary before, but anytime you can get a world championship level player, um, you got to jump at it. Yeah, his insights are incredible. I mean, I, I I tweeted about this a couple of days ago that like he's, I mean, he actually like blown me away, like how 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 insightful his analysis is. And of course, Daniel Narodisky like needs no explanation. Like maybe maybe the best uh, chess teacher on the internet. Um, and there are many great teachers on the internet, of course. Um, so that has been a joy. And um, talking a little bit about about the World Cup. So obviously, there's been this uh, this drama with the the, the COVID testing. Um, I don't know how, how have you uh, been like a little shocked about that? Like what's been your opinion from like a, a pure spectator's opinion on the, and also shout out Eric Rosen, who's the official photographer for the world cup, by the way, while we're on <laughs> the topic. Right, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I don't have any unique insights there, but someone pointed it out online that it's a little crazy that Caruana's game started. And in the middle of the game, they pointed out that his opponent had a positive COVID test and had to end the game like after the opening. And that shouldn't be happening. They need to get the results before the game, before players potentially get infected at the board. Yeah. Um, no, apparently it was some, some mishap. Fide said that they, it didn't, wasn't supposed to happen like that, but whatever, whatever the case, I, I agree with you, shouldn't have happened. Yeah. It's incredibly ambitious to even attempt to do the World Cup in these situations. Um, so if it ends up with these being the only incidents, that'll be great. Right. And it's a little unfortunate too, because um, so for those of you who don't know, so the FIDE World Cup, um, I think two spots in the candidates tournament are given to people. I think the the the, the top two finishers in the World Cup uh, get spots now um, in the FIDE candidates tournament, which determines who is going to play against uh, the world champion. If it's Magnus or Nepomniachtchi, then this tournament basically will determine two spots in the next tournament to determine who gets to face the next champion, which I believe will be Magnus. I don't know what you think, but. I think he's favored, but Nepo is interesting because he's a very streaky player. And if he's on form, it could be a really tight match. And if he's off form, Carlson will win, win easily. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's, that's very apt analysis. Um, but yeah, is there anyone in the world cup that you've been rooting for as just, as just a fan? Um, I like rooting for the people I've been talking to recently. And, and actually this last match was, uh, Mohamed Yarov, who we've been working with on lessons versus, uh, Krikor, uh, I'm not going to be able Mkhitaryan? to make it to Perfect. And they're both, and he works with chess.com as well. And unfortunately they can't both advance. They played a, a very tight match, which Mohamed Yarov actually just won today. Um, 
so I think I'm rooting for him going forward, but also there are, you know, tons of people who I root for some of the American players and just players who play wonderful chess that I'm a fan of. Um, World Cup's just always one of the most exciting events because it has so many top players and many guys you won't even have heard of. Um, Because it's a reminder just how many strong grandmasters there are in the world. Um, I also think uh, GM uh, Perlstein also pointed this out on Twitter that like chess may be the only sport where you can have like a 15-year-old and a 50-year-old basically on the same playing playing level uh, in like an official tournament. And furthermore, I don't think there are like a lot of knockout tournaments in popular in like chess like the top level chess anymore. So yeah. This is the only like big over the board knockout tournament I know of. I know the Carlson tours had some online. Yeah. But it's not quite the same as having like 300 people in a, in a playing hall. Like when you combine like the, the men and women, like you have like 300 people, like, like basically just trying to knock each other out for the crown. I think that's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And actually speaking of these age gaps uh, today, Kirill Georgiev, who I think is 55 or so just knocked out uh Parha Magzulu, the twenty-year-old uh, Iranian prodigy, um, and a small upset, but I think Georgiev was like a former world junior champion, so wow. you can't assume that he's not a strong player. And Parham is like also a former world junior champion, I think too. Yeah, probably thirty-five years apart. <laughs> so 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 cool. I was I was rooting for Levon, but unfortunately he had to withdraw because he was feeling sick. I don't think it was COVID in the end, but he was he 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 came down with some tonsillitis. Yeah, I think I think that was it. And yeah, that's a shame. He's actually won this event twice before. Um, I think he's the only one to do that. So he would have been, of course, one of the favorites uh, this time as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you know, Levon Aronian, a lot, a lot of people have like kind of um, criticized him for maybe not like putting in the, because he was always number two. And I guess a lot of people were expecting that he would, if not be a world champion, actually, I'm reading this book um, by Boris Gelfand, um, Positional. Decision oh, that's a great one. Yeah, and he and and Gelfand actually says, and this is from like three years ago, and and Gelfand actually says that he expects Levon to be like a world champion challenger, um, in the book, like in the in the end of the book, like he talks about his like friendship with Levon, um, but Levon seems like a like a really personable guy, and and always in the international events, like back when he played for Armenia, now he's in, with the Team USA, of course, um, but one of the things that they say that stands out as great as a chess player as he is is his leadership, and that's something that maybe Team USA can really have when it's time for the Olympiads again. That's true. I don't know him personally, but if you look at some of the Olympiads, he won, I think, two Olympiads with Armenian teams that were not the highest rated teams in the event. So I think there's some discussion about how much teamwork you can have in chess because it's an individual sport in some sense. But if you discount it completely, you're going to wonder why Russia doesn't usually win the Olympiad despite always having the highest rated team. Right. Yeah, Russia. I mean, and Ukraine has won a few times. America won, of course, a couple of years ago with Nakamura on the team. Nakamura and uh, I think Sam Shankland, uh, Dominguez. Forget that. Forget the whole team. But yeah, but people can look it up. I think it was uh, China won this most recent round, and U.S. won the round before that. Yeah, but the, was uh, was China the uh, the China win was that online? No, I think this was pre-COVID, but everyone, people should just look it up. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, also, and then of course, uh, Ali Reza got knocked out today. I was also rooting for him, but, uh, and Uzbekistan, uh, as well. Like they have like three players onto the next round. It's already going to be round three and they have three players. Pretty yeah, cool. that's very impressive. I don't think anyone predicted, um, Faruja losing to someone younger than him. And I think, I think in the upcoming match, it's, uh, 
Nordebeck Abitsurov versus Geary, which should be a fun match. I know Nordebeck is always one of the contenders on Titled Tuesdays on Chess.com. He's one of the great sort of online players these days. Yeah. Now, is it true that um, like uh, when when it's time for uh, like the Title Tuesday tweets? I don't know if you know anything about this. Is it just like pre-recorded for that? You know, Hikaru Nakamura wins the thing. <laughs> no, he doesn't quite always win, yeah. but he's he's typically a big favorite. Um, and yeah, if you want to see why, just watch. He has, he has a great stream. They also cover him on Chess.com streams. Show a lot of his games. And yeah, he's a menace at blitz. He's probably the fastest player in the world. You know, while while we're on the topic about like online chess and this stuff, is there is there anything that you maybe both as a fan, as somebody who works at chess.com, is there something that you are you're kind of looking for in terms of growing the game online? So I think chess.com's done a great job recently uh growing the game through like pog champs and other kinds of tournaments that appeal to people who aren't just hardcore chess fans. Like I know lots of chess players watch, but these tournaments that bring in people from other online communities are a great way to sort of demonstrate that chess is for everyone and not just for the Nakamura's and Carlson's of the world. Um, Cause there's lots of chess for those guys too. But if we have all these people who were home during the pandemic, looking for a new hobby or people who watched Queens Gambit and want something to do, um, it's great to have events that appeal a lot to those players as well. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. I, I was telling like, uh, you know, someone I recently had on my podcast, uh, he, he also said like, uh, you know, like most, a lot, a lot of times how people, uh, we were quoting a Jen Shahadi quote, actually um, a tweet. And uh, Jen Shahadi said like, what if like measuring like how good somebody is chess wasn't about like their rating, but like what they do with, with the game, you know, and most, most people who play online, if you like, you look at the chess.com like curve, they're hovering at like between 900 and 1200, like on average, just like the first between like 30 and 65 percentile. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's great. Uh, but like, I think it's important to have those kinds of events like pog champs where like, you know, it's, it really, you can have somebody like Nakamura or Naraditsky like commentate these kinds of games between like famous streamers who are like around that same range and like talk about their mistakes and talk about their creative ideas. And I think that that helps everybody. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And most chess players are either completely unrated or they have an online rating and it's below a thousand and we want to make the game appealing to them. Like there's plenty of stuff. We all, of course, want, you know, every people, adult improvers and serious tournament players to have ways to learn and get better. And we want to make up, give them opportunities to watch the speed chess championship or great coverage of the world cup or world championship, but they're not the majority of chess players. We want chess to be for everyone. You know, as online chess has grown, the share of competitors has also grown. And I know, you know, legend Gary Kasparov, he's recently come with his own, uh, with his own chess website. He's trying it again. I think it exists in like 2005, but it's back better than ever. Uh, and it also has video lessons and stuff like that. So do you kind of look, you know, across the the interwebs and say, hey, you know, we have a competitor, we got to kind of change things up? Like, is that something that's kind of on your radar? Or do you just like, you know, fledgling thing? We're not worried about it right now. Because I think chess.com is king in a way. It's free. <laughs> yeah, chess.com is huge and growing really fast. And 
I think we're pretty open to seeing, like, I don't speak for the company, but I think we're pretty open to all these competitors that all offer their kind of unique things to just grow the game and show the world, you know, give, give people what they want. If someone prefers some other site, they're certainly welcome to go there. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. And certainly, I mean, there's a lot of overlap, like even like the, a lot of the chess 24 commentators have done stuff for uh, Kasparov chess and vice versa. I see like a lot of people kind of bouncing around. I don't think it's like quite like a, as much of a camaraderie thing about like, oh, you have to play here. Yeah, so. I think it's a, a pretty friendly rivalry to the extent that it's a rivalry. Like I'll definitely be working with these grandmasters on courses that are like, oh, can we meet next week? Because I'm doing a chessable thing right now. And, and that's fine. Yeah. Do you use chessable, by the way? Um, I personally don't, but nothing against them. I just don't have any experience there. So do you, uh, like, as someone who's a national master, do you, like, obviously with COVID, it's a lot harder, but, like, do you, do you still play actively in tournaments, or are you more or less just on the, like, the working side of things? So I play pretty much exclusively online now, and that actually predates my time at chess.com, and it's more that I'm a dad now. Um, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old kid at home, and as a result, I don't sleep quite as much as I should to play serious tournament chess, and also... Chess tournaments are just exhausting and it's a lot to ask my wife to, you know, watch, watch the kid for a couple of days. And then also when I get back, I'm going to be tired for a couple of days. It's sort of a chess hangover. Um, and so I, I pulled back my kind of classical play a little bit, but who knows, maybe he'll get into chess um, when he's a little older and then we can go to tournaments together. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess like, do you, will you like, so I don't know if you'd call yourself retired exactly because you still play online, but like, uh, do, would you still like look for books every now and then you find an interesting book and you say, Oh, Hey, I'll, I'll read that or. Yeah. So I still read for fun. I've got a pretty big book collection at home. Um, and yeah, it's mostly not super serious training. I'm not, you know, doing tactics an hour a day. Like I would recommend say someone who has time and looks and looking to gain as much rating as they can to do, but I'm reading for fun. Uh, anything that, you know, game collections are something I particularly enjoy. And I guess my advice to most players would just be that you're not a professional. If you're a professional, you have to, to you know, very succinctly target your weaknesses and eliminate them. But for most of us, you're going to do what you enjoy. If you hate end games, you know, maybe cover some of your weaknesses, but don't, burn yourself out doing something you hate. And if you enjoy books or videos on whatever topic will get you more into chess, go do that. Also, I mean, on chess Twitter, there've been a lot of, lot of people now that things are opening up um, who are, you know, going to clubs for the first time. I recently went to, I went to Marshall. I'm playing the Marshall chess club in New York. I uh, playing a weekly Wednesday tournament and, uh, Typically, the section that I was like in the under 1600 section, typically it's like six people, as I remember it, like going in the past. Um, I never played it, but like if I was in the club and my friend played it, it was like six people. I went there now, it's like 20 people in the under 1600 section. And I heard a lot of them say, oh, it's my first over the board tournament. Um, as somebody who, of course, is a national master, must have played a lot of over the board chess. Do you have any like recommendations, just uh, basic principles about what to do over the board in terms of, you know, maybe being nervous or, you know, getting prepared? Sure. Yeah. So even though I don't do it a lot now, I played a ton of over the board uh, to get to where I am. And there really is no substitute for classical chess in terms of trying to improve. 
uh, you're just going to have a lot more deep ideas and slow games than in Blitz. Um, so yeah, if you've played sort of exclusively online, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, um, practice with a board, either find someone to play training games with, or if you have to play online because you don't have anyone local and you're playing a long enough game, it might be worth it to even set up a chess board and do your thinking in front of the board and make a move on the board and then relay it onto your screen. Uh, that'll get you a little more used to playing with those wood or plastic pieces and you won't have trouble kind of transferring your knowledge when you get to a over the board tournament. Well, yeah, well, there you go. Some, some advice that I, I actually desperately need. Um, and you, you heard it here first. Um, well, yeah, I guess in that case, I'm wondering, is there anything else you'd like to plug um, about maybe you, are you working on any projects? Sure. So as we mentioned earlier, you can get the uh, Chicago blaze book on Amazon. And I have a new book that I'm actually coming out with soon. It's going to be called The Next to Last Mistake. There's an old uh, Tartakauer quote that the winner of a chess game is the person who makes the next to last mistake. And it's going to be about defending difficult positions. So what do you do when you're in trouble, but you don't want to resign? How can you try to turn things around? I actually, just a couple of years ago, was just thinking, and I wrote up a manuscript with not really any intention of what I was going to do with it. And then one of my friends, um, Ali Thompson, uh, another chess coach, uh, read it over and thought, this is great. Let's edit it and get it into shape to publish. And so that should be out later this summer. Oh, wow. So yeah, keep, keep an eye for that. I mean, that's something that everybody can work on, of course. Um, I have one more, one more question to ask everybody on the podcast, as you may or may not know. Um, so you're a chess coach. Uh, I'm sure you have a lot of insight into this, but I will always ask uh, all of my guests, if you had like one opening you had to teach anybody any strength what would it be and why oh that's a great question i think uh i can't place who said this but someone who understands the spanish understands chess there's just so much uh both positional and tactical ability that goes into playing the spanish well um so maybe start there and then take it from there yeah, and I mean, I think the uh, it's it's a classic opening for a reason, you know, four hundred years and counting. So, uh, yeah, I, it's a great great pick. I play the Ray Lopez, so uh, yeah, for sure. Well, Perfect. yeah, and actually, one one nice thing there is there's plenty of flexibility. Also, you can play e four e five. I've done that my whole career, and you can learn the lines. And if you run into an issue, you're like that variation. I'm having trouble. You can pick another variation in the Spanish without having to rework your whole opening repertoire. True. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that makes it really, really, really good. And all, but also for black, there's a lot of ideas too, or the other way. Definitely. So yeah, yeah, actually, I mean, either side. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of 64 chess podcast, Jeremy, thank you for coming on the show. Hope to have you again. Um, once again, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm uh, my podcast is at 64 podcast. Jeremy's is at chess mensch. Uh, you can also subscribe to the Patreon if you would like to help out the show. Uh, it's uh, patreon.com slash 64 podcast. And uh, once again, I want to thank AimChess for sponsoring uh, this podcast. You can use my code David30 to get 30% off your first month with AimChess. Uh, and I guess I will see you guys soon. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>